we tell stories that engage, inspire, and have a lasting impact? How do we turn thoughts and ideas into effective and authentic storytelling? How can we use stories to make a difference in our work, lives, and communities? I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and together we'll explore what it means to tell stories with heart. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Storytelling with Heart podcast. I am your host, Camille DePutter, and with me today is the artist Dreama, aka the author Amir Ahmad Nasser, a multifaceted writer, musician, speaker, coach, and storyteller. Dreama is the founder and head coach at Assertive & Co., where he facilitates a values-based method for awakening creators, coaches, and experts to their true voice so they can grow and lead with more purpose, freedom, and fulfillment. He is also the creator of Billion Dollar Ideology, a values-based global narrative strategy consultancy for democratic government, military, and business leaders. An avid writer, Dreama's writing has been featured and reviewed in over 13 languages, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Economist, The Guardian, Wired, and dozens more telling stories about faith, spirituality, human rights, and human flourishing. Dreama takes a human, heart-centered approach to his work and storytelling, and that's what we're going to get into today. So, welcome, Dreama. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Camille. Good to be here with you. Awesome. Well, maybe we can begin by just jumping right into a couple of key terms. I know that you use this word conviction, which I find really interesting when writing and speaking on behalf of Assertive & Co. You, talking, you talk about the need for leaders to have conviction. And I also know you use this term that I love as well, heart-centered. Can you unpack these words a little bit for me? How and when do you use them? And how and when do you talk about these things? How do they come up for you? And what does that look like? Thank you for that thoughtful question. I think the phrase heart-centered is one that is acceptable to pretty much everyone, really, regardless of cultural background, regardless of whether they're secular or spiritual in how they see the world and how they live their lives. Another phrase that conveys a deeper meaning, though, and that reveals where I'm coming from, is spiritually inspired. So I place a lot of emphasis on the timeless wisdom traditions, the timeless spiritual lineages that we have as human beings. And so whatever that spiritual lineage is for the person listening, it's actually really relevant to who they are and how they can live their lives and share their story. Because for me, being heart-centered is very much about the transmission. People can have a well-articulated story with a beginning, middle, and an end, and the words could all be great, and they sound nice, and everything is really crafted very, very concisely. Mm -hmm. And if the transmission from the heart is not there, if the person is not really connected to mm -hmm. their deepest source of conviction, then it's not going to be felt that much. And so people need to feel their own conviction in order for others hearing the message to also feel it. And mm -hmm. that's a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. And to get to a level of truth that is real, that is genuine, that actually is provable based on someone's track record, how they've lived their lives, consistency in their patterns, 
of their conviction and how they're acting on it, or maybe they're afraid of it, whatever the issue is, it's a very deeply personal process, a conversational process, a facilitation. And so I find that going deeply into it and what that means for every person, it's really dependent on who they are, their circumstances, and how the conversation can go there. But conceptually, of course, I talk about it all the time. I mention it, I discuss it in ways that get people to just think about it and maybe pay attention to it as something that is more important in some ways than the words, because the words, especially now with AI tools, we can come up with all kinds of words and sentences and heck entire books. I was just reading an article today about how now Amazon is being flooded with so many books published um, and written by AI. And mm -hmm. people are having a hard time. Well, how do I know if this book was written by AI, if it's actually written by a person who's heart-centered, where there's a transmission, oh. where their life force was actually part of the process. And so someone's whole background, that really tells us a lot about their being, and we can actually appreciate the words they're writing and speaking way more. And that's kind of the reason why I resonated with you, because it's in the name of what you do, right? It's, it's all about mm -hmm. being heartfelt. And storytelling from the heart has that quality of a human transmission. And so that is always, for me, the place that we should focus on. But sometimes business people, they're looking for a practical, conventional outcome, and they can be transactional and too strategic and too deliberate. And they can even script vulnerability into becoming mm -hmm. what I call plastic vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And people are becoming smarter, more attuned, and they're catching up. And I think that's a good thing for all of us and for the culture to recover in health and to improve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You said so much there. There's, there's plenty, you know, that I'd love to dig into more and, and expand on. For starters, can you tell me more about that idea of plastic vulnerability? That's a really interesting term. Hmm. So as a student of storytelling, I've studied all different kinds of approaches, including screenwriting. And there is an acting coach by the name of Larry Moss. So Larry Moss coached a performer, a playwright, an actor named Bo Eason. And I learned a lot from Bo Eason, who also is all about storytelling. But his approach is being the best, being number one in the world. He's a former professional NFL athlete. And when I saw his play live, I was blown away because there was so much realness and vulnerability and it did not feel scripted in a way that made it plastic vulnerability. And yet the interesting thing is that in technical terms, he had a script for his play. Mm -hmm. And when you go into a movie setting, you have a screenplay, right? As a screenwriter, you can analyze it. And so what Larry Moss talks about as an acting coach is, if anything, we're actually all actors. All of us are mm -hmm. actors. And in order for you to become a true actor, it's a process of not acting. It's actually mm -hmm. unacting. It's actually being in touch with the realness of life at its deepest, most authentic, rawest form. And if an artist can connect with that and let go of the masks that we wear day to day in society, and just tap into whatever that thing is within them, then as they deliver the script, 
They're mm-hmm. delivering it from such a powerful place of raw honesty and authenticity. And the more capable they are of that, the better they are as professional actors. It sounds like your interpretation of, of vulnerability goes further than this idea of, oh, well, just tell some more personal details about you. It has to, because that kind of vulnerability has been commoditized for the lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And I remember being a blogger in 2006 and how much of a big deal it was. I'm like, wow, I could actually post these things and they're in journal form and I can comment on other blogs. And, you know, before that, before Blogger was a thing, before WordPress was a thing, you know, back in the late 90s, you know, we had Tripod, we had GeoCities mm-hmm. <laughs> and creating websites with that. But traffic patterns were trickier. The conversation wasn't as nuanced and smart. So people were just kind of thrilled by the tools and the ability to have something on the World Wide Web, as <laughs> we called it back in the day. But with blogging, there was more maturity and there was already sort of and experiencing of the tools that had come before. And now is more about, well, how do we actually express something that is noteworthy, that is valuable? And then blogging turned into citizen journalism. And many bloggers, you know, and let's say in a place like the United States, ended up becoming um, journalists who were considered credible, legitimate journalists who had come from a blogging background. That was a very fascinating sort of journey to go on and to witness how the nature of communication on the internet evolved. And now we're in a time and age where, yeah, like I could share personal details in a story and I think it's a good start. So I don't want to dismiss it as a bad thing or insufficient. No, not at all. I think it's a good start. But there's so much more power and potential available to a storyteller if they're just willing to go deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that that's really well said. Earlier in in one of our conversations, you had mentioned heartbreak as a way Mm. into that. Can you tell me more about that, this idea of heartbreak and and what that means and why it can be central to that kind of storytelling? We all go through heartbreak and the word trauma can bring up a whole bunch of other stuff, which would require a question, you know, um, a credible professional therapist to question in the right way to guide the patient towards the trauma being treated. So that's the role of the therapist. The therapist treats trauma. In therapy-informed coaching, in trauma-informed coaching, that has relevance. And I think we can discuss it in ways that don't get into those fears so that we could have a healthier scope in terms of our expertise and where we operate. Because in this world of coaching, coaching is a, a very broad industry. It's unregulated. It has some incredible talent, some amazing people who are doing so much good work and innovating thanks to that freedom. Um, and unfortunately, there's a dark side to the coaching industry also where people are masquerading as coaches when in fact they're really, you know, mainly marketers and they're seeing it as a money-making mm-hmm. opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate heartbreak as a portal into heartfelt storytelling because it's a conversation that we can all have we don't have to be therapists we don't even have to be coaches and Mm -hmm. we bond more over stories of heartbreak than stories of glory it's easier to share stories of glory not all the time because sometimes people can get bogged down by too much humility which then becomes false humility and they Mm -hmm. don't want to shine their light they dim themselves 
But I find the case to be, you know, more often that the glory is easy to talk about and that's too prevalent in the culture. And I'd love for us to talk more about the heartbreak that perhaps led us to where we are now or could lead us to where we wish to be if we're willing to actually feel it instead of, you know, talk away from it or cope in ways that diminish it because there is gold in there. And as Joseph Campbell says, in the cave you most fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. In my experience, the people I've worked with, if we talk about the heartbreak, there's just so much more depth and gold in that process. And naturally, conviction arises. Mm-hmm. And with the heartbreak, too, I I sense you're talking about not just, you know, how we usually often use the term of like, say, a, a romantic uh, heartbreak or even like a maybe a, a grief kind of heartbreak, but of those moments in, in which you are you know, you had allude, alluded to trauma or like just these moments where we feel like we're cracked wide open or, you know, mm-hmm. we're there, that real vulnerability comes out that, that pain or that, whether that's through, through something that changes us where we grow or a sense of loss. Is that kind of what, what you mean when you talk about heartbreak? Like what, what does that look like? Another beautiful, thoughtful question, and thank you for deepening the conversation. The answer is yes, all of that is included in a larger definition that has to do with existential angst. Mm -hmm. We're in a day and age where the larger global narratives, politically, militarily, economically, are now all in disruption. And we don't have a world of mass media that speaks to us with gatekeepers that had pros and cons. And now we're shifting into a world where, okay, what are the greater, larger narratives? And there is so much more money being invested in disseminating those narratives by the powers that be for their own interests. So discerning and knowing the differences is really important, and it could be very messy. In our own personal lives, we can discount the effect of that as a major factor that contributes to existential angst. We've always had a need for stories, for mythology as human beings. And if we can come from a place that's inside out, that actually serves human needs, instead of serving the needs of a system, whatever that system may be, we can actually get to a place of greater self-realization because we're coming from a place of authentic self-expression. Part of what I also focus on and deal with coming from this space of understanding that heartbreak is really capital H heart and all the existential issues that come along with that, including grief and romantic heartbreak. Part of what I deal with when I look at all of this, you know, in, in all its wholeness is that it helps us discern what is a human need versus what is the need of a system that is actually robbing us of our humanity. Mm. And and very often that is not talked about because most teachers, coaches in this space, educators, they shy away from touching on any of those larger issues because, oh, no, that's political and I don't want to get into politics. And Toni Morrison, the African-American Nobel laureate in literature, she said it best. The decision to not make your art political is in and of itself political. All art is political. 
And it's okay to make the decision you don't want to talk about it. That is fine. That's a very valid choice. Just like getting a ballot and you don't like any of the candidates, you know, you could sort of do a protest ballot or whatever and not really mark anyone and just kind of write your own thing down. That's something that we have as a right and I think it should be respected. Having said that, you will deal with the consequences. There are consequences regardless. And as long as we're clear on what the consequences are, we can accept them. And we can move forward towards self-actualization versus, you know, quote unquote, success that actually takes us off the path of self-actualization. Um, then, yeah, I, th I think we can all do better. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about what you were saying before about AI. And I'm thinking about how we live in a society in which the expectation is to produce so much to produce more and more content, more and more marketing materials to just have more and more coming out of us at all times. And now that pace has only increased with the use of AI type tools. And as this expectation to produce more increases, it seems like what what goes down with that also is the expectation of really connecting more deeply and humanely as individuals. And I can't help but think that this is perhaps an opportunity for those of us who do want to connect genuinely, who want to show up as ourselves in our lives and work, who want to really be who we are and find like-minded human beings and connect with them, and that want to put the effort into that, and perhaps also to do this work at a different kind of pace, where the expectation and emphasis is not always on more, more, more. Maybe there's an opportunity for us to go the other way, to set the tone for ourselves and our, our organizations, to work maybe at a different speed and put out content and, and marketing materials and communications of all kinds at our own pace that works for us and that allows us to connect on the basis of some of these kinds of things that you are talking about, the human parts of ourselves, the messiness, a deeper level of connection and honesty might be possible if we're willing to engage in it. What are your thoughts on that? Is there an opportunity here? Massive opportunity. And I think those of us who position ourselves ideally with the right credibility and track record, as the culture shifts and the backlash grows and a desire for a better alternative grows, I think it's going to be ultimately a good thing because there are going to be those of us who can help guide people out of that old paradigm into a better way of being and doing things. There are situations where an entrepreneur or brand, it is perfectly reasonable to post every day and to send out newsletters every single day and maybe even post multiple times a day across very, very different social media platforms. As long as the person is not burning out, as long as they're not doing it because, oh, I have to feed the newsfeed beast more, <laughs> more, 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 more. Mm -hmm. And they're coming from scarcity or coming from panic. And the way that I look at it is, sure, we can help people win in the game of business, but are they losing or winning in the game of life? Yeah. You had mentioned earlier that you, you felt that the idea of a heart-centered storytelling is something that a lot of people can get behind. But um, I, I actually feel that there's still, a, a, when it comes right down to it, kind of a, a resistance around this, even if we're looking at 
the more of a surface level idea of when we say heart centered or vulnerable of it being just even more more personal more more of my human experience mm. details feelings and so yeah i i still think when we get right down to doing a lot of that work People have thoughts of like, well, I shouldn't really be talking too much about myself or, you know, I have to kind of script to this more branded narrative. If I share some of my own thoughts or opinions or experiences, is that, you know, is that going too far or are people going to be, I don't know, bored or annoyed or anything else? Um, what what do you do you get that sense at all do you see any kind of resistance or hesitation about that and could you speak to that a little bit um thank you for that so that's a clarifying question that can help me clarify some things the vast majority of the people who seek our help through assertive and co and seek me out as a head coach are those who've already been storytelling they've already been selling something online they've maybe been speaking on stages and in most cases, they're already generating income, but there's something missing. Mm. And it's not physical burnout because they don't exercise or they don't eat well. It's a burnout that's more elusive. And what it is really in corporate America terms, you know, as they would call the golden handcuffs, is very much something similar. That, well, this is the golden goose, you know, this is the thing that's making me money. And um, yeah, you know, I bought this thing called ClickFunnels and I executed on it and it made me money. Great. Congratulations. But but now I hate my clients and, and I don't really like them. And so their version of success is not getting them to be more self-realized, self-actualized. Their version of success is getting them further away from who they truly are and what their true voice actually is because they obsess too much over product market fit, offer market fit, service market fit. What's the thing that I can create that the market is going to pay for and is going to pay for a lot and I should really obsess over that and split tests and run more ads and do more social media and get more call bookings and maybe SEO the crap out of this, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. more and more obsession. And very often I admire the tenacity and what they go through to get that offer market fit. But what they miss out on is, was this even the right offer for you as the creator? Was there a creator offer fit? So creator offer fit tends to be a problem that arises later. And in the beginning, it's not really much of a focus for somebody because they don't have an incentive to question it or deal with it. In some rare cases, although the numbers are gradually increasing, people are like, I want to start things the correct way. I want to make sure that I'm in alignment first and then I begin. Sometimes that can lead to too much caution. And it's like, well, just begin and dabble right. and make mistakes and, and figure out what you like and you don't dislike. Because then we have some contrast and some data to work, work with. Right. So there are pros and cons, and it really depends on where people are in their journey. What you asked about, it sounds like it's somebody who maybe has given talks in like maybe a corporate way, or they haven't given really talks that much, or it's been very much like, you know, a podium style of delivery where it's pre-written and they're reading it and they're way too in their head and it's very cognitive and very cerebral and they really could use some help being in their hearts that's a beautiful place to be and it's an awesome way for them to grow into that to drop more into their hearts and i get the sense that that's what you do 
I, I think often I'm, I'm, I'm working with folks where it maybe has been a little bit more um, corporate. They're trying now to develop more of their personal brand. Mm. Um, they're trying to do a little bit more speaking and sharing and, and real thought leadership. So this answer is coming to me now because I'm feeling hunger pangs. <laughs> <laughs> like, ooh, I'm thinking about food and something delicious to eat after this. And it's relevant because it depends on how hungry the person is. If they don't have an incentive, I find that it's challenging to coach anyone on anything, you know, just because we see the possibility, mm -hmm. right? And it doesn't mean that they're going to go for it. So they have to be really hungry. And I want to emphasize that it's not a choice between self-realization and fulfillment, you know, while making, you know, decent money or a lot of money, but no fulfillment. It can be both. I was speaking to an entrepreneur just a few days ago who had worked with very closely, you know, a few years ago, and he already hit his goal of $100 million in revenue annually while absolutely loving his life jumping out of bed in the morning going, whoa, like this is my life. This is magical. Like this is actually possible. A hundred percent. Let's leave aside heart center, the word conviction, all of that, even spirituality. Let's just leave it all out and set it aside. And this is the benefit of having a more versatile vocabulary. Because in different settings, I can adopt a very different kind of vocabulary in different language. And sometimes I can literally speak in a different language, mm -hmm. right? Being multilingual. So let's talk about it in a way where it's a no-brainer. And I've said this many times before. Assume you're an artist, a singer, songwriter, a musician, who just got signed to a record label because of some cool stuff that you've been putting out. Okay. Good record labels will take their artist through what is called artist development. What's their vocal range? Can they hit these high notes? Or do they have a different vocal range where maybe they have a deep voice as well and these are the notes they can hit? Okay, what genre did you listen to growing up? Like, what genre do you love? Is it jazz? Is it rock and roll? Is it pop? Is it hip-hop? Is it blues? Is it R&B? Do you listen to world music? Maybe, like, you're into super-duper new-age spiritual stuff and, you know, you like, you know, Tibetan bowls and, you know, ding! and sound yeah. healing like what is your vibe what's what's your thing and you're going to get a bunch of answers right so as they clarify that for themselves they're going through artist development let's get into the vocal booth i'm sitting here i'm a producer i'm a creative director okay we've got the talent we've got the artist rock on deliver now they're singing are they doing that because they want to be chart topping artists and maybe get a juno or a grammy and they're doing it for that, or are they really doing it for a deeper reason, coming from the heart, coming from conviction? Even if they are coming from the heart and coming from conviction, sometimes they could evolve. They could go, you know, into a different sort of mode of being. And if the record label insists on, no, 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 you, you've got to keep writing songs and doing songs on heartbreak. No, 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 no. We, we've got to produce the next album and it has to be about this because that's what people are buying and that's what the fans are showing for. Mm -hmm. Okay. But am I going to get trapped in a music career uh -huh. <laughs> where I'm just hating these songs, right? Yeah. I mean, there are some illusions and I don't know how accurate this is, but we could sort of look at it from a public place with some discernment. You know, Kurt Cobain. Amy mm -hmm. Winehouse, mm -hmm. 
Whitney Houston. I actually just listened to a great um, podcast interview with Mike D from the Beastie Boys on the 10% Happier podcast, where he talked about mm. in the early stage, like when, when they were kind of in this like frat boy persona and that the record label held them to and that was very misogynistic and very much not you know it was they were kind of joking around themselves as friends and kind of take you know playing with this persona but then it became big it became huge and they were taught they were told directly by their record label this is your persona now this is not only the music you have to produce but the people that you have to be or or the roles that you have to play and he talks about you know getting out of that contract and and getting out of that record label situation that enabling them to then go on and and do you know the work that they really became known for and and how it's like we never would have we never would have been able to to stay whole human beings stay friends let alone stay in the music game if we had done that right on such a great example so that already happens in the music industry for better or for worse mm -hmm. If it happens for great artists, for the better, right? Their own betterment and the betterment of their audience and society. And if those artists end up pursuing it the mature way, which is basically, well, the next album, I might lose some fans who are not going to continue the journey with me because they just wanted me for th that other thing. That's okay, because the true fans who are really bought into your own story and who you are, they're going to want to follow you. And so the best fans are the ones that grow with the artist, the mm -hmm. ones that reflect on the artist's work as the artist is evolving and moving along in their journey. And they can have fandom that can last decades. And these are the best artists out there who still have careers today. Sting still has a career today. Mm -hmm. The Weeknd is going to have a career 10 years from now, 20 years from now, because he did it the right way. He stuck to his lane and it wasn't some synthetic, you know, made up thing where like, OK, this is going to make me popular. No, he said, this is my sound. And in The Weeknd's case, it's dark R&B. He basically took the genre of R&B and instead of singing you know, about the usual themes of like this man who's going on like sexual conquests and is this old school way of dating, you know, like back mm -hmm. in the day and look at me, I'm so badass and so hip and so cool. And I've got my car, my house, my bling. No, he took it the other way. He's like, oh gosh, I'm too drunk. I'm too high. And yeah, I slept with this gal and I was just feeling bad about it the next day. And, you know, I was bringing my shame to her and she was helping me process it. And then I got drunk again. And ugh. <laughs> like, well, wait a second. That yeah. is not my expectation of R&B. So right. all of a sudden he's tapping into something else that people connect to. And it's like, yeah, that's that's kind of how it is like, you know, sometimes when you're partying and it's not very mindful and you're going through crap and, you know, alcohol and drugs are just way too easily available. And he's got a whole different kind of audience as a result. He mm -hmm. changed R&B and it's his lane. Tim Ferriss, an author, not a musician, came up with the four hour work week and he coined the phrase lifestyle design. And he became the king of lifestyle design. And he's still known for that to this day, although not in the same level of specificity because he's broadened since then because he's evolved. Mm -hmm. So these are all great examples of artists, whether they're writers or singer-songwriters, who embrace this way of thinking. And I believe more entrepreneurs, more founders, more CEOs, more professional corporate executives, 
really ought to take a look at this way of thinking to consider a better alternative. Because even if right now they're not going through a troubling time in their communication, oh, it's coming. At some point, it's going to be here, especially if communication is really important to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's inspiring and not a coincidence, probably, that a, a lot of those examples that you're just sharing came from music because you're a musician and that's a huge part of, of your life. Maybe share a little bit with me about what that journey is like for you. Thank you. Thank you for that question. My grandfather many years ago taught me a really important lesson that stayed with me ever since. And it's actually the source of a lot of what I do. We were sitting under a lime tree in Khartoum, Northern Sudan, by the Blue Nile and White Nile, where they converge. And he was talking about how the lime tree we were sitting under came out of a lime seed. And he held out a seed and showed it to me. He said, this seed does not give you a mango tree. It does not produce a guava tree. And it will never grow into a palm tree. A lime seed only produces a lime tree. Now, you've got to put in the right kind of soil. You've got to give it the right amount of water and the right amount of sunshine. Sometimes too much water, you can actually kill the seedling before it could really grow fast and become something greater. So your job in your life, your duty in your life, your moral imperative in your life is to ask yourself the question, What is the seed I carry within me? And which soil can I grow in to make my most fruitful contribution? So in a previous time in my life, when I was based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and Southeast Asia, the idea of pursuing music, even though I was obsessed with it since I was a kid and in high school, I would make breakdance remixes for breakdance competitions they would come to me the other team would come hey we heard their mix we want something that's better i'm like whoa okay conflict of interest here (laughs) i can't be doing this you know and an artist would show up and hey i have this song that i wrote and you know Kuala Lumpur at the time was very cosmopolitan very international and i went to an international school with kids from all over the world many of them their parents were diplomats and international schools are set up for that reason so you can continue studying in english overseas could be a british system gceo level high school certificate or you know an american system one and so i was yeah in a british international school though it was full of an american pop culture influence go figure so that was a big experience that I had at the time. And it always struck me when people were singing and performing their art from a place of authenticity versus those who were doing it for popularity. Mm. So that said, I grew more upset and frustrated that I wasn't getting support to pursue music. You know, I went to the biggest English language radio station in the country and I played my songs for them. And the DJs were like, no way you produce this. Because I was just a teenager at the time. I was like maybe 16 years old. They dismissed it. And I'm like, I can explain my process. And then I broke it down. Then they believed it. They're like, wow, this is really great. So I got some good feedback. But not more than that, really. And something happened that I can now see in hindsight. I grew angrier, more upset. And journalism became a really good outlet for my anger, sometimes my rage at the world and the injustices and the abuse of human rights and and the corruption scandals, just all of it. And so I took my songwriting abilities, my music production abilities, and I began producing articles 
first they started as posts on a blog, then they became articles. Next thing I know, I'm being flown around to speak at conferences and I'm meeting heads of state and Nobel Peace Prize winners and, and you know, military people. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what is going on here? I didn't really plan for this. But what I did plan for was to have influence. Influencing the right decision makers to better themselves and make better decisions as a result so that we could actually impact more people positively. And it taught me the importance of leverage and where I could apply my effort, my skill set, and my time with high-level influencers who could impact literally thousands, tens of thousands, or even better, hundreds of thousands and millions. But I wasn't fulfilled. So all my teachings come from my own journey. Because of the threats that I faced, being a journalist, colleagues of mine were assassinated, I was threatened, and I had to leave everything behind and start all over, you know, because as I was traveling, I needed a place to stay put, to root myself, to feel more settled, to have more solidarity, right? To just feel better, mm -hmm. safer, more secure. And while having that, okay, to travel and maybe being more mindful about places to not go to anymore because I'm blacklisted because of my writings. Mm -hmm. So Canada coming here, the story of my grandfather that I just shared started to come back into mind, started to come back from the past. I'm like, I'm literally in new soil. Like literally, <laughs> I'm landed in a yeah. different place now. Yeah. So what is the relevance of aspects of my seed that did not really come into fruition? Like what are the, the relevance? Like, yeah, what are the things that are relevant about those aspects now here in this context? And when I was in Vancouver before moving to Toronto, you know, I found about the studio that was like a 15, 20 minute walk where Avril Lavigne recorded, Buster Rhymes recorded, U2 would come and practice before their concerts because they would love the Vancouver mountains. And I'm like, this is insane. This is just down the street, a short walk. And it, it created a bit of a crisis. And after that, I came out of it and I realized I'm not going to be angry over what I couldn't do because it's okay. It was happening for me to teach me influence and connecting with high level people and so on and so forth. Well, what if I apply those skills that I learned? It wasn't in vain. What if I apply those skills to make it into the entertainment industry, the music industry, you know, um, Toronto International Film Festival, a big reason why I came to Toronto and decided this is the place where I'm going to, you know, root myself. I figured, okay, I, I could do all of that. So by applying those skills and now coming back to my art, I'm thinking about my music, I'm working on my debut album, and I'm very excited about it. And I feel now that I'm on the verge of becoming so fully self-expressed that there is nothing in me unexpressed anymore. And mm. it feels so humanizing, so liberating. I'm so full that thank you for allowing me the opportunity to take what is overspilling <laughs> and to share it with you and your audience. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing so much of that, of, of your own story and, and being so open about it and, and a bit of what you've experienced and where it's taken you. And, and I can see, you know, why it makes sense that you are able to coach people through this kind of process as well because you you've been through it too where it's like yes I, you know i'm sure you you know are aware that you know you did really important work you did really great work that had a real 
impact and, and influence and, and was valuable. But that doesn't mean that that's the end of your story or that it's all that you have to give or what you want your next chapter to be or what you have to stay committed to because it's what you did in the past. So you sharing that is, I think, inspiring and, and probably helpful for other people to remember as well. Like we can always go back to that lime, that lime seed. It's, it's not, it's not gone just because it hasn't um, mm-hmm. been, you know, really maybe grown or it doesn't mean that it's not there. Absolutely. And the difference between a plant seed and the seed of your soul is that the seed of your soul doesn't germinate. It's, it still stays there and it has a timeless quality to it. And there is so much opportunity in exploring it because the seed of your soul comes from source, capital S source. If we can use a different word, I'll use capital M mystery. Mm-hmm. And that way we can also exercise humility in regards to what we don't rationally know, what we do not understand scientifically. And that maybe isn't always going to be understood through those different ways of knowing that there is a knowing through the heart and it's a real knowing and it's a legitimate knowing and it's very personal and it can be intersubjective. And we all have the choice to reset the starting points of our stories. Mm, that's a great line brilliantly said and a great place to leave this Dreema thank you so much for being here and for having such a a thoughtful and really heart-centered and open discussion with me it's been lovely to have you thank you for the opportunity and thank you for hosting thanks for listening to the storytelling with heart podcast Want to turn your thoughts into leadership and your ideas into words that make a difference? Find me and discover more free resources at www.camilledeputter.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to my email newsletter where I share stories, free tools, and other storytelling guidance. And never forget, your story matters. Your story matters.